Hello and welcome to Season 3 of the E3 Podcast. I'm your host, Emily Mottram. This podcast is all about building science, healthy homes, architecture, and female entrepreneurship. So prepare to get nerdy. So welcome back to the podcast, guys. This is the first episode up after my short August break. I hope everybody had an awesome time in August. Today, we have Catherine McPhail on. Um, She is another architect, and you guys know how I love to highlight other women in the field. So Catherine, tell us a little bit more about you, who you are, where you're at, uh, and what you're up to. Okay, well, I... uh... I'm an architect and I'm practicing in Eastern Massachusetts and and for many years my my main project type has been just additions and renovations right to the housing stock we have around here because in Massachusetts where I live right next to Cambridge uh, it's very densely packed already there's not a lot of new building going on or if it is it's tearing down old houses and building new houses and that makes me a little sad actually so I don't usually go for those um, I'd much rather take a house that is probably expecting to be torn down any minute. And instead of tearing it down, giving it a second lease on life, really. So I also realize that I am um, probably putting a lot of emotion into these houses that they might not have, but I actually do. I just feel it myself. So um, so anyway, I went years ago, I went to SciArc for my uh, master's of architecture. And at the time, we thought, or I, I kind of got the impression when I was there that we were supposed to be changing the world, right? So it was like this, how are we going to change the world through architecture thing? And then I got married and I had three kids and I only could take on projects um, that were very small. And actually when I got out of graduate school, I was pregnant. So I needed to start my own firm so that I could get health insurance so that I could, you know, have a baby in a hospital and not have to pay um, like $20,000. Anyway, so that's how my firm was born, which is a not very romantic um, start to the whole thing, but it was a practical thing. So then since then, I've only really been able to take on pretty small projects. So that's how I got into the type of work that I do. And um, mostly working by myself. And at one point, my husband, who also was in my class at SciArc, is an architect as well. And so he and I worked together for a little while in this 26-year history of of my my work but um yeah for the most part i i ended up homeschooling my my second kid wasn't doing well in school and so i just took them out of school and ended up homeschooling for a total of 13 years which wasn't what i was planning to do when i was thinking of my career but i fit in my work like in early early mornings or when i was waiting in the car for them to get out of class because i didn't i'm kind of a lefty i was a lefty homeschooler so it wasn't um we didn't just sit at home and I didn't just teach them things. I'm, I facilitated their lives and I worked in the car. So my practice was like that for a long time. And um, and at one point I, uh, well actually, my, and so my kids have grown up now. They're like 20, oh, I don't, I've lost track. They're 25, 23 and 16. So I still have the, the trailer hanging around. And so she doesn't need me as much though anymore. So I have been able for the last three years maybe to work totally full time with my husband taking on any kind of um, household duties, which has been really great and really, um, really nice of him to do that so that I could really see for change. Like if I could really put all my energy into my career, what would that look like instead of just trying to you know, just cobble it together and drag it along. So it's been kind of a gift that he gave me, which I, um, which, you know, should I really be saying that's a gift that somebody gave me that I could work full time? But yeah, that's the way it is. So um, anyway, so I finally, 
So I finally had the chance to see what I could do. And then I sat and looked at what have I been doing for 24, 23 years, whatever it was at the time. And then I looked at my classmates from SciArc and thought, well, I'm not, you know, I see that they're being published in Dwell or they're doing this other great thing or this, you know, have this beautiful wallpaper line. And then I was thinking like, I just don't do, you know, I just do additions, right? And then I thought, you know, how am I gonna change the world with that? And then I realized that I have information and knowledge that other people could use. So given the fact that really all I do is work that changes one family's world, not the bigger world, you know, how could I have a bigger impact? And because um, it's just something that I wanted to do. I do want to help people and feel like I'm useful in the world. So then I thought, well, I have this information that other people need and homeowners seem really stressed about starting. A lot of my clients have never done any architectural work or anything like that. So then I thought, well, I'll start this podcast that can help my clients figure out what they need to know ahead of time. So they might feel a little more insecure. I mean, so that they might feel a little more secure in what they're doing. And so that was how I decided to start my podcast, talking home renovations with the house maven. And, you know, now now this uh, starting my third season and you were on this week, actually, is your episode on this week. And so it's kind of turned into this thing that is my creative outlet in a way, because, um, you know, when you're doing somebody else's project, you're working on their vision and and they have the control over the vision a lot of the time. And so I used to knit quite a lot and then I knit way too many hats for a gathering at one point. So then I got um, very over. I just didn't want to knit anymore after I knit like 40 hats in a very short period of time. So um, anyway, so now I do my podcast and I just really, I love talking to people. I love connecting with people. I love learning about what people are doing. So for me, it's it's um, perfect. And hopefully for homeowners, they're actually learning something about home renovations. Although sometimes it's a little, maybe it's not on topic for just the regular everyday homeowner. Like I just interviewed somebody about raising up an Italian at brick historic building in Charleston and lifting that and what that means. So to me is relevant because of course, you know, we are going to be facing coastal city flooding on a big scale. And how are we even going to deal with that? Anyway, I also thought it was an interesting story. So um, that'll, that'll be coming up. But anyway, you know, it is, I, it is relevant. Um, you know, and I think what I love about your podcast and what you're trying to do is you're trying to connect homeowners to the world of architecture, right? Because um, one thing that has occurred to me is that we've we've made access to, you know, building, renovating and doing your own project fairly accessible to most people. But it's more complicated than we realize, um, or maybe not than we realize because we're we've this is what we do as a profession kind of every day. So it's great for you putting that out there to other people to say like, Hey, take an extra minute and think about this. Right. So like you talked about raising a house in Charleston, which is going to become an issue for a lot of people in coastal areas is coastal areas are starting to get a lot more water, a lot more flooding. We have to think about these things. So Right. Don't just go and do this massive major renovation and not take like five minutes to think about, okay, well, 
what's the longevity of this renovation that we just did? Or, mm-hmm. you know, I know when you talk to me about, about mine, um, my husband and I are living through our renovation, which is exactly what we tell all of our clients not to do. And so you get to hear as a firsthand experience of exactly why we tell people not to do this. So, um, I think it's important to put that out there because otherwise, um, the, the difference between, and, and maybe this is why some of us are doing the difference between the fun stuff that you see on HGTV and the design shows and all the jazzy stuff and the reality of making that happen sometimes mm-hmm. is a pretty big gap. And, um, yeah. it's good for people to know and expect that going into it, especially with renovations. Cause they're always more complicated. Um, one of my colleagues, uh, Travis with Catalyst Built posted on Instagram last week and they had opened a wall and it was filled with rocks. Wow. And it's like, you just, I mean, you just never know what you're going to find. That's true. You open a section of wall. Um, and That's so, true. Filled with rocks. Were they just, I mean, it was like a stud wall filled with rocks? I'm it was trying a to stud imagine. wall. It had rocks in it. And I don't know if they were trying to use it as insulation or thermal mass or if it was a rock wall that was well, part of, that I don't weird. know. But right. it was but, really interesting. Yeah. You never know. It was like a whole section, a whole couple of bays had rocks in them, like big rocks. <laughs> I was so like, oh, weird. Okay. <laughs> That's funny. I love I love stories about old things found in walls. It's good yeah. when they're interesting, head scratchers, maybe not what you would do, but not uh unsafe. You know, as we right. talked about with mine, it was like we found some improvisational framing that was cut and trimmed. Like, I don't know how this is being held up and some live wires that was yeah those aren't fun those aren't those ones aren't fun (laughs) no but you know and and almost it's fair to say almost all the time that in an old house underneath the tubs the joists are just like swiss cheese there's no way that they are should be holding up a tub so one piece of advice i want everybody no matter what you do do not jump around in your tub in your house if yeah. it's an old house, because you don't even know what the joists are like underneath there. Because usually they're just, I, I am amazed that the house is still has the tub up. And you never hear about people falling through the ceiling in their tub. Or at least you I have You don't hear about it, but you've seen enough of them to wonder why it hasn't happened yeah. more why frequently. Why hasn't it? It's going to happen. So don't jump in the tub. Yeah. Don't jump in the tub. That's great advice. Any yeah. other podcast episodes that you got something from that was sort of like an aha moment, like a particular episode that people should go and listen to? Hmm. Well, I had this one episode with a contractor that I don't know that it was a big aha moment. A lot of the, I mean, a lot of these things I already know about. I try to ask questions that I think my, my listeners would have. So it's possible I come off as not knowing any much about anything, but um, I, I want, I want to answer their questions. Right. So, but there was this contractor on there is what, uh, what your contractor wants you to know. Number one, I think that's the name of that one where he was talking about really practical advice about setting your budget. So I like that. And he suggested going to, um, you know, the real estate agent, which is pretty standard, but then also the bank and see how much the bank would be willing to lend you for that. Even if you're not getting a loan or not having any kind of bank involvement, because he said that they're the most conservative people, you know, the bankers. So that will give you an idea of what is conservatively reasonable to spend. And, you know, if you're like me, you're just going to spend it anyway, because you want the thing, whatever it is you're doing. So, but it's kind of good to have that information. So I, I thought that was like, a, oh, yeah, I like that. I like that advice. 
And then um, my the episode on lighting design was pretty interesting, I thought. I think people have gotten a lot out of that. I don't know. There are all these renovation stories that I've been doing that I just love hearing about people's stories about wh- what happened when they when they were renovating their house. I just – the whole reason I became an architect was because I love old houses, I think. So in the end, I love stories about houses and renovations and even ghost stories. Just the history of – which makes me seem a little woo-woo, I guess. But I mean, I do feel like, as I said earlier, that there's an energy to these houses that intrigues me, I guess. So I also really love old houses. I grew up in a really old house. Um, it was built before the Civil War, uh, you know, had gone through however many renovations or whatever um, until 2013 when my parents uh, did a very extensive renovation on it because, of course, it was, you know, a log house that was Swiss cheese when the wind would blow and would make all kinds of cool ghost story type sounds. And our <laughs> friends who lived in more like city houses or whatever would come over and they'd be like, what is that noise? And so it was fun. I think I, I grew up in an old house. And so I, I really appreciate that. But in 2009, when the market was really terrible and it was considered, you know, gamefully unemployed to be in the practice of architecture, especially residential construction, right? Cause a lot of residential construction really, um, really dried up. Um, I started doing a lot more energy audits and I got to go into a lot of these old houses and see how they were built and see what they did. And that's just a invaluable learning experience. I think for, for any architect is to, to be able to get into so many different houses and different structures and see how people do it. And then, you know, people are willing to share. Um, I find there's a great building science community on Instagram where they're willing to share things that they've done that went well, or things that they've done that didn't go as well as they expected, or things that they found like, like you're doing with your podcast, the things that they found during renovations, like, Oh, Hey, check this out. You know? So (laughs) the information share is really exciting. And I don't know if it has always been that way, or if I finally just found a core group of people who, who are sharing more now, but it's exciting. Um, and it is so. exciting. Yeah. I think people are sharing more of everything now that we can. It's a totally different way of sharing than, you know, 20 years ago, even if it would be hard to publish your own book, there were self-publishing books, but now you can just publish your thoughts on the internet right now. I could write something that I'm thinking and then put it out there. And then, you know, it was a totally different information highway, I guess. It's just, yeah, so you find your people or you find the people who are interested in the same things you are online, really. And I don't know, it's been, I love, I love that. I mean, it's amazing when you think about how much that has changed and how much that brings people together over distances that if you, you could now be working daily with somebody who's in, let's say, New Mexico, whereas that wouldn't have been, that wouldn't have been the case. Anyway, just the world is a lot different than it was. The world is a lot different. And I think this past year and a half has really taught us how to connect in different ways. Um, you know, so this online platform has allowed us to, you know, connect like this via podcasts um, with our BS and beer show, with other people on the internet, with clients who live out of state. Um, you know, for us, for, for Maine, a lot of our clients live out of state and are building a house in Maine um, or renovating a house here. And, um, so it's, it's been great, but, um, that leads us actually into another discussion that I'd love to have you talk about, which is, um, as part of this group of architects that, that we both belong to, um, we're starting to put together, um, and you are helping to spearhead this, um, a 
I, I'm not even sure how, how you defined it, but a, basically a, a relief fund for oh, yeah, yeah. individual okay. architects. So, so talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, so it is in the beginning stages. So we're just trying to figure out how it's going to work. It is called Artemis, which stands for Architects and Designers Mutual Aid Society. So the idea being that uh, sole practitioners, I always get that mixed up. I want to make sure I say the right one. But the sole practitioners, you know, those of us who have our work, we're just us. And if something happened to us, then what would happen to our clients? What would happen to our families? You know, so there's this worry that a lot of us live with about that. And so, um, you know, anything could get, we could have an accident, we could suddenly get diagnosed with cancer or whatever emergency might come up. So we would have this peace of mind knowing that there was this fund or this group who could maybe help us out with a loan, a low interest loan, no interest loan. We haven't worked all the details out yet, but the idea being right now, I think, is that it's going to be a membership site. So you submit all your paperwork ahead of time. Then you donate whatever you can donate um, a month or you could do it like a yearly thing, even if it's just $5. The idea being that you're paying into this this thing that's for the collective good. And then if something happens to you, your paperwork's already there, you can maybe get I would love to see it make money the next day if you need that in a crisis, because when there's a crisis, you don't really have three weeks to wait or two months to wait, you know? So the idea would be that we would be supporting each other. That's it. We're just supporting each other and giving each other um, peace of mind, which I think there's a lot of anxiety in our profession or being a person running your own firm and when something could get derailed all of a sudden. Just knowing that there's people, there are people around who can help, I think, is comforting. Yeah. And I think, you know, we take for granted the the sole practitioner who works by themselves doesn't have the network of people who, who you know, can help to support that. So say I need to hire somebody to help me get my clients the things that they need because I'm in, in crisis and I don't have access to that funds, you know, even if I have... Uh, retirements or savings funds aside that could help my family through, um, you know, through, uh, you know, me not making any income for a certain amount of time. What if I don't have a way to support also getting the clients that we, we do have, you know, and people are generally very understanding about, you know, health crises, right? Mm -hmm. Right. But that doesn't mean that they still don't need to get their projects done. And in our current work environment, the way it's going is even as much as I liked you, if you came to me and said, I'm having, you know, this, this thing and I can't do it. Can you help me out? I mean, I've been turning away work through, through the beginning of the year for next year, just because we're already so busy. And so, you know, it's, it's this similar thing in architecture as it is in building and the trades, which is it's a very booming economy right now in our trade. And so, you know, you need to have a way to, to try to find someone because maybe that one or two other architects that you, that, you know, don't have the ability to take something on for you. Right. So you need to be able to expand your network and say, okay, I need to hire somebody. I need to, you know, and so I think it's great that, we can set something up where we can support each other. I know um, when the idea first 
got kicked around. Um, there was some reference to, I think it's um, a farming fund in Vermont, mm -hmm. you know, for farmers, very similar setup is, you know, oftentimes they've got independent family farms. And if you have a, a bad year, you know, like, exactly, especially yeah. with the climate crisis right now, if you have way too much rain or no rain at all, and you lose an entire season's crop, like how do you get your family to the next year to the next season when you're paying for those those things and then to be able to access that fund make it through this year to fund the next one and then be able to pay back into that fund when you're able to or maybe you prepaid into that fund and then you have a bad year 10 years later um I think it's a really nice way to think about our society and other people in our professions and being able to support one another. So, yeah, it is. It's, it's, I feel, I feel really great about it. And the idea that I could help other people, hopefully nothing will ever happen to me, but you know, you hear about somebody getting hit by a car on their bike and all of a sudden, like they just thought they were going to do X, Y, and Z that day, but nope, not doing any of that for a long time because they're, you know, in a full body cast. And then if something happens to one of the people in the group, I imagine that it will be go beyond money to helping them, like you said, helping them um, with their clients or in any way possible. So it's just, it's just a nice um, community to be a part of. Oh, and you figure we all pay health insurance and everything else in hopes that nothing ever happens to us, but it's there when we do. And so it's just a very similar thing and a way to protect your, your business, right? Because as a, um, you know, as a solo architect, there aren't as many, uh, business protections as there are for, you know, a larger business, a larger firm that might, you know, if you've got a bunch of people working for you and something happens to you and, there's usually someone to pick up the slack. There's some kind of insurance. There's a, you know, there's, there's, right. there's an engine that's going, but yeah. For a lot of solo architects, we don't have any of those things in place. So yeah. I think it was um, was true, too, I think, uh, during this pandemic and the, the PPP loans and were they going to apply to self-employed people and how did that work? And so there was a lot of scary stuff around that. Turned out the building industry is a... Uh, is apparently still a, a necessary thing. And so I think a lot of us ended up working more hours than less hours. Um, but at the same time, it, it was, it was kind of a, a place where you said you put on the brakes and you said, hold on a second. Like, wh what do I have? What do I have access to? And, you know, how can I make this work? And do I need to go get a, a job? And, um, you know, you were talking about, um, earlier, and I'd love for you to expand more on this as a, as a woman in the field of architecture, but you were talking earlier about like you were pregnant when you graduated from, from architecture school and you needed to, to transition to having a family. And it's like, when you have a professional degree in architecture, either a master's or undergrad degree, like what are you qualified to do other than that? I've always wondered that. Right. So yeah. if you had to switch gears and get a job and do something, if you couldn't start your own firm at the time, like like what, what, what are we qualified to, to do? You know, it's, a, so it's really interesting, but I'd love to hear you talk more about how you managed to get your internship, get licensed, work from your car while you have kids. Um, because <laughs> I think 
part of the reason I wonder, you know, is there's, it's this whole, um, my graduating class in architecture had 50, 50, uh, women to, to men ratio on graduating from architecture school. But when you read a lot of the society, uh, reports, um, that in, in architecture, less than 20% of actual registered architects are women. So I always wonder, are, are they out there? Are they working in the field and they just didn't get licensed? Because, you know, maybe you can talk about this. After having kids, how do you study for the architecture registration exam? I can't even connect those two dots together because. <laughs> well, don't ask my kids about it. But here's what here's the way. Um, I don't know how they feel about my whole career mixing up with their childhood thing. Because I definitely. um so what, what happened was I had, you know, as, as I mentioned, I had a baby um, in July. I got out of, uh, I finished my master's in February. I had the baby in July. And then babies are, they don't do much. So for the first maybe nine months of their lives, they're just not moving. So it's it's kind of easy to keep things going. Now, once you have a second kid, then the first one's moving a lot so that you don't get to have the, the kind of um, lag time with a second baby. And then the third baby, it's just all bets are off. So you just have to figure out how to do things at this like multitasking. So I've always said that I'm really lucky that I have a profession where I can work for myself, basically, and make a decent living working part time in between all the rest of my life, you know, so um, for years, probably from 1996 until um, like three years ago, probably to 2017, I had to figure out how to make it all work. And I was married to someone who had a job and he so he got the health insurance and he made um most of the money but i still worked that whole time and um just managed to do it i have never been a great sleeper meaning i've never thought that sleep rules apply to me which i am now realizing you know now at 54 i'm realizing they know it's important to sleep. So now I'm really trying to sleep. But for years, I really didn't sleep very much. And I would get up around four in the morning um, and work for a few solid hours on things that I really needed to get done that day. And then the rest of the time, I would try to gather little bits along the way and then work again after my kids went to sleep. So the whole schedule always changed because the ages of the kids make a huge difference in what you can get done. Later on, um, I don't know if I should be admitting this on in a public podcast type thing. But I had, um, I remember one site visit where my kids, um, I had a kid who was uh, six and eight when I had my third kid. So I kind of made my eight year old keep an eye on the baby a lot of times. So I had them in the minivan doing some kind of workbook stuff. This is when I was homeschooling them and the older ones were in school and the younger one was just a baby. So she's like a year and a half old, probably. She's taking a nap in one of the chairs. The other two kids are just doing their workbooks. And I was inside at a site visit. And um, I, my client saw after that I had my kids outside in a minivan. And honestly, I don't think he was very, I don't think he was very impressed. But the door was wide open. So it wasn't like a heat issue. But it was kind of, was that negligent? Um, I don't know. It was a safe road. And they didn't get out of the car. And they got some work done. And I got some work done. And that was the way our lives kind of went. I, I would work outside of, you know, they take literature class where they go in and read like Count of Monte Cristo or whatever with as a group. And then I'd sit out in the car and run down the battery. And so mm, probably like three out of four times, 
the car would not start. So we'd always have to call AAA and we'd be late to the next thing. And that was what my life was like. Um, you know, that's just the way it was. And I was doing what I could and working on pretty small projects. And um, but I, I was able to do it because I was an architect. So what I did was when my husband, before I had the third kid backing up a little, we we went into practice together after he got registered. So he went on the more traditional route of working for firms and things. He got registered, and then we started our own thing. And mean in the meantime, I had been working for clients and other architects and things like that along the way. And so then I was working for him. So the way I ended up, this is probably also something I shouldn't be talking too much about in public. But so the way I did my internship was working for him and um, logging my hours on the different types of projects. And at that time, I was doing all of the stuff anyway we had a couple employees during that time we had a storefront we talked about in graduate school having this connection to the public and to people and having them come into our space and we showed um local artists and we had readings and we had a design competition for bus stops and things like that so that was a fun time but um also i got no work done having the public in my office like all day that the reason people don't do that is because it's really hard to get any work done people are coming in and chatting with you although i loved it so uh anyway so after a certain number of years working for him and other hours that i'd already done i ended up applying for my that i could take the exam and i remember being really worked up at the time like saying like if they're not gonna let you sign off on me because you know we're married then that's because someone had told me that so i was all worked up about that because that's not I don't know. You might get favoritism. You could get favoritism from anybody, though. Right. <clears throat> I mean, you don't have to be married to them to be, you know. But anyway, so it worked out fine. And I took my exam. And the way I studied for things, by that time, I still only had two kids. And so I would, um, I got the flashcards, you know, the cards that are in the box. And I went to the beach with my kids and I let them play in the sand. And I would give them, um, I bribed them to not bother me and just play in the sand. And so if they were um, successful at not bothering me, then then I would give them candy or ice cream or some other treat. So that's how I did it. I bribed my kids. We went to the beach and I just did the flashcards because that's the way I learn. I mean, I'd read the book and then I'd do all the flashcards while I was with them. So that's the way I did it. And um, said, yeah, I just, now I'm really tired by the time I've gotten to this point in my life. And um. I remember my kid, uh, my my son asking me when he was like eight or 10, you know, like a kid, if I could have a superpower, what would it be? And my superpower that I wanted was just not to be tired. So um. I think it's the perpetual parent is always tired. But I had to kind of laugh when you said, you know, you're, you weren't very good at sleep. And it makes me kind of wonder if architecture school leads you to to that advent because you go to architecture school and you have this idea and a lot of architecture schools are the same where you know you just work and work and work and you know you even some architecture firms are like that where you know the expectation is that you don't work 40 hours a week you work probably 60 hours a week or 80 hours a week and you know I don't know what the statistic is or, or, or what, but I, at some point I had heard that like, there's a pretty high divorce rate in the field of architecture because we work too much and we don't sleep a lot and we're we're like nocturnal animals. And I know that 
I'm only just getting to the point where I'm like, you know, sleep is actually really important. And um, yeah. I ran into someone who had a student uh, who had a daughter who was in architecture school where I went to architecture school and she's in second year and second year, you basically have to almost apply to get into the rest of architecture school. So, you know, you kind of have to pass this um, submission in second year that says, yeah, we think that, you know, it's good for you to continue on to third, fourth and fifth year. And I remember when I was in second, second year, um, I can totally tell you why people are considered insane. If you've been awake for 72 hours, because I stayed up for 62 and a half hours. And I mean, things move and things are there that aren't there. And I mean, it's, it's, it's really terrible. And so you set up this precedence in architecture school that if you're not there and you're not really like chugging away on your projects and they're in the middle of the night, um, you know, you're somehow not successful, which is totally not true. Um, by my fifth year, I realized that I had to take a nap every night. I had to sleep three hours every night or I was, you know, uh, uh, not, not very good, like mentally not there, but still three hours every night is not sleep, right? No. That, that's just keeping you from, from maybe total insanity, I think. <laughs> and yep. so, you know, I went to architecture school straight out of high school. And so I was 18 when I learned this habit and it is a hard habit to kick and you, you, you work a lot and you, you do it because you're super passionate about it. And like you said, you know, I think a lot of people come out of architecture school feeling like they're going to change the world with architecture. We've, it's always been that way, you know, from the, from the discussions of the utopia type uh, villages that people would create and the, you know, the, um, the town hall centers with things that are grouped together or just, you know, there's, there's so much that I think architects feel like they can change the world with, with the architecture. And so if you're not passionate about it, you don't do it because we don't sleep. We don't really make that much money. Um, we, <laughs> we are yeah. obsessed with our passions, uh, those kinds of things. So yeah. Well, you make it sound so enticing, Emily. I don't know why people keep going into <laughs> architecture, honestly, but I don't know. I mean, I, the, yeah, it's a bad habit that starts a long, started a long time ago. I used to, I went to school in Los Angeles, architecture school in Los Angeles. So temperature wise, it was, I was able to sleep in my car. So instead of going back to my apartment, I would sleep in my car with my boots on because then if my feet would start to hurt after about two and a half hours, and then I would wake up because I wanted to wake up. And I was so tired that I, an alarm wouldn't wake me up, but my, my poor feet would be <laughs> so in so much pain that I would wake up. And so when I got married, I got married after my second year. And um, I kind of resented my new husband for putting an end to that. He's like, that is ridiculous. He was like one of those people who would go home and go to sleep at a normal time and really would not let me sleep with my boots on at home in the bed. And so I, <laughs> he ruined my life at that time. But um, <laughs> uh, yeah, he was much more reasonable. So it was a good thing I got married when I did. I had a lot of health problems because I'm not sleeping. I mean, I used to be able to write on my on my arm, you know, like my skin, like I had some weird skin thing going on. I'm pretty sure it's because I didn't sleep. I, but you know, when you're 25 or six or whatever I was, I felt like it's fine. You know, it's, it's what, fine. It's, it's whatever. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. None of those rules apply to me. I don't know where I got that mentality, but any like self-care rules. Yeah, they're not really talking about me. 
you know i don't know it's, it's a weird thing i don't know if that's what that is being an architect being a woman i don't know but anyway it does it does apply to us and now i have this sleep coach that i'm trying to pay attention to because um you know being well rested means you can make good decisions and be more productive in the time that you're trying to work it makes yes. total sense so work harder <laughs> work smarter not harder right and then like exactly. that concept somehow just didn't apply it didn't apply in architecture school and then it didn't apply as you continued to work and you know whatever and so it takes a long time to get there but uh I think about my practice and all of the things that I'm putting into building these sustainable homes and the healthy indoor air quality and how we treat those things. And it's like, well, why are you not treating your mind and your body that way also? Right. <laughs> sort of a, a strange wake up call. Yeah. I know it makes no logical, it makes no logical sense. And when you say it out loud, it sounds even worse. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And so. we are doing nothing for the practice of architecture, people who want to get into architecture uh, or women who want to get into architecture. But I think that it's important to talk about these things. I wish I would have known the me now when I was 18 to learn some of those lessons, but maybe you're not ready for those lessons. Um, on the podcast, I've talked to a lot of different instructors who teach at different architecture schools and the program is just so huge of what you have to teach. And it's like, what's the most, what makes the most sense to teach? And, you know, it gets a lot of flack that not everything that you teach is practical, but if everything we taught was practical, would we all live in Walmart, right? Like, would we all live in a square box with a, you know? Um, and so it's, it's this fascinating idea that I don't have any answers to, right? And this is why I do the podcast is like, what have other people experienced, right? I don't think I've ever talked about the fact that we didn't sleep, like ever. <laughs> yeah, well, but. you know, there are certain types of people who did sleep and the other ones who didn't. And I don't know if it was because I am and was female um, at the time, other way I felt like I had to prove myself and not be one of those people who had to go sleep. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? I had this... Um, Margaret Crawford was one of my instructors, and she was an historian, architectural historian, and, and she was co-teaching a uh, studio with an architect, and so she was my studio instructor, and um, we were all working late one night. It wasn't even that late. It was probably only 11 by the, when she came in to the studio, and she said, what are you all doing here? Like, what do you, who do you think you are? Why do you have to train to work all night? This is only mismanagement of time. There is, you are not doctors. There's no reason you need to be able to work all night. It's ridiculous. You should go home and get some sleep. And she was very right. And um, why do we train to work all night? There's no emergency situation where we have to work all night, you know? No, in fact, I think it was um, Jake Bruton, um, who said it, and I think he said it on Instagram is, you know, his day ends at three o'clock. It, it might start at four o'clock in the morning or whatever. And he might still be putting in 12 hour days to get everything accomplished because he's got to go out to his job sites, but he's also got to do paperwork and run the business and, and everything. But it, you know, his day ends at three o'clock, right. When his kids come home from school and his family time or whatever. And he's like, there's literally no fire I need to put out. I'm not the fire department. If your house <laughs> is literally on fire, call the fire department. That's yeah. Like, I mean, and just that's the, the reminder call is that to, you know, she said that to you about working all night, right? It's, it's brilliant. It's totally true. Um, in, in what we do, but then I think we build these expectations on ourselves. And I think one of the things that's kind of crazy is, although we just talked about this as a positive and being able to jump on Zoom and connect to people everywhere, is there's downsides to technology too, which is that you're 
Um, yesterday I didn't eat lunch because I had zoom meetings from first thing at the start of my day that all ran long and all ran till three o'clock. And at three o'clock, then I was just like so hungry because I hadn't eaten anything, um, in that span. And it's like, technology is amazing, but we have to learn how to program our technology too, so that we're not always available. And we put, um, I think, unreasonable expectations on ourselves as well is, you know, it's okay to get back to someone in, in 24 hours, not 15 minutes later, you know? And I, I try to only check my email three times a day, first thing in the morning at lunchtime. And then at the end of the day, because you get sucked into your email and you're in your email all day. And then you don't get any of the tasks that are important or urgent done. And so, um, with all the good that comes with technology, there's also a lot of bad that comes with technology as well. Right. Right. And things like texting or Slack or any of those messaging apps that are expecting you to get back to them right away. Yeah. That's just by their nature. Yeah, you're right. That is a bit of good advice there. I'm going to try to adopt that, Emily, just three times on my email. I'm yeah, never going to do three that. Three times a day means you're still getting back to people within a certain amount of time, but you're not caught up in the email log jam, which is you open it up. Your intention is just to zip off a quick email because you thought of something, right? Like, oh, hey, I need to reschedule this meeting. Um, And like two hours later, you're still responding to emails and and everything because it's important, but not urgent, but you got in there and it's important. So now it's become urgent, even though it it wasn't. And so, um, for me, it's been, it's been huge because you can just get kind of stuck in that circle of, of responding because there's just a ton of communication to handle. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And it just takes over our lives. It does. Yeah. And we were, um, when Ford created the model T and he production lines and he wanted for, for, people who worked there to be able to afford the Model T, right? And so it was a, a way to provide a more cost-effective automobile. They didn't increase the number of hours that people worked because they wanted them to enjoy the automobile. And I think we forget that if we don't take any downtime, we're not very good at what we do for work because we haven't had any break from that. Like right. you just can't do the same thing over and over and over again without a break from it so yeah that's very true but as you said bad habits start early and they're hard to they're hard to change so they are hard to change but you know sometimes things like having kids means that you have to take a break because this other person needs you is that the kind of break that you want well Maybe not. Maybe that's not the kind of break we, we need. But it, it did help to break up. Um, now I'm just down here for maybe 12 hours at a time. And it's just a big, full chunk of time, which is great. I actually, I really like it. So, But I think there's a lot to be said for that, too, is when you have somebody else who needs you, you just don't have the luxury of working 12 hours a day. You just don't. So you have to take that break, which I think is there are pros and positives to to being an architect with kids yeah, it's true. <laughs> or, or, or a spouse or a parent or somebody that lives with you or a hobby or something else that just, that needs your time. And we need to, you know, mm-hmm. we need to realize that we're not just our jobs. Um, 
And right. apparently in other countries, it's like frowned upon if you ask someone what they do. <laughs> in the U.S., that's like the first question. Oh, hey, oh, you know, I'm so-and-so. What do you do? Um, and yeah, I, I love this. Um, so this comes up a lot when I talk to other architects on the podcast. Um, when you tell people you're an architect, how many people tell you they wanted to go to architecture school or <laughs> oh yeah, all the thought time. about it? What is it about our profession that is so glamorous? I don't know. That same instructor, Margaret, she used to say that we have a lot of cultural capital as architects. We might not have, you know, actual capital, but we have a lot of cultural capital where we go to a party and, you know, everybody wants to be us. They think they want to be us, which is, (laughs) I don't know why. I have no idea why, but yeah. And they usually say I was no good at math. And I usually don't say anything about how I never took calculus or physics so I'm somehow I'm good at fractions, though. I mean, which is like where I use math in my everyday life. Well, and I think what people misunderstand about being good at math and being bored by math. Right. So like some people aren't good at math because it's boring and it doesn't make any sense to them. Right. So like I didn't love calculus before I went to college and then had to use calculus in my structures classes. And then all of a sudden calculus was applied to something that made sense to me. And I was exactly. like, exactly. You use oh. it for something. Yeah. It's not just yeah. some random yeah. thing. Everybody says that uh, they all say, you know, I wasn't any good at math. What, why do you all think that we're like math geniuses? Like, <laughs> yeah. Cause we're not, first of all, oh, you just use what you need to use. And also if you can't do something or something's not your strength, you can hire somebody else to do it. I hire structural engineers. I have like an intuitive sense of what I want structurally. And then he does the calculating. So. Yeah. I but. have a structural engineer uh, who reviews all of my stuff. I mean, honestly, that's just good practice. Like right. even if you're good at it and you can size things and everything else, having another person take a look at it, take a look at your drawings, even, you know, just having another person take a look at your drawings and they're like, oh, hey, uh, we're going to need a beam here and you can't get the head height you need under the stair. What do you want to do? Like just having another set of eyes on your drawings, especially as a solo practitioner is awesome. But, you know, yeah, yeah. gone are the days um, back when the architect was the master of all trades. Building is way too complicated to be good at everything. Like, do we know enough? Probably. I I always say I know enough to be a little bit dangerous, right? Because I love to (laughs) do um, energy calculations and get into the mechanicals and everything. I'm I'm, I'm weirdly obsessed with mechanicals. Um, And so, I'm not going to size your heating and cooling system and do all of the, the calculations on the ventilation ductwork and whatever, but, um, I know enough and to put into my energy models and know, you know, the outputs and the expectations to know a a basics of where, where it's going to go. And my job is to coordinate that, right. Is to know that I've created enough space for you to get the stuff where it needs to go, that we're not creating a lot of these other things to make sure that, you know, in Maine, a lot of places put in boilers that are oversized that go on and off too frequently. And it's like, oh, with my energy model says this is a 30,000 KBTU house and you want to put in 150,000 KBTU boiler, I'm going to go, wait a second that doesn't seem quite right. And so, um, you know, it's the same with structural engineering is as an architect, you develop systems that work in your climate zone, in your area, you repeat some of those systems and sure 
architecture is different and not every house is the same or whatever, but you come up with systems that you know work. And so you're, you're, you've got five details that you need to have engineered because you've already figured out the physics and the engineering of the other things that you you've done. And yeah, we do still need to um, spend a lot of time. I think there's so many materials get dumped onto our market all the time that we need to understand how they work in our systems. And we, we don't always do that. Um, but well, I think that you have more, um, it seems like you have more opportunity to use new materials and things like that. One of my uh, professional frustrations is working with contractors who are doing it the way they've always done it. So if I have an idea of maybe we could do it this way. Yeah, well, you know, we're just going to do it this way. Or if I say, um, hey, how about we use well, whatever it is, they don't want to do it. And I so I either I need to find new different contractors who are already doing it, um, you know, who are maybe more concerned, concerned with uh, building a better product and, and partner with them rather than try to drag other people who aren't that interested or who yeah, say think- no one's going to pay for that or. It's really oh, frustrating. I hate that. Um, we've done it this way for 25 years and no one's going to pay for that are not reasons yeah. not to do it. Um, yeah. like my I, mark is not interested in energy efficiency. Like seriously though, I mean, maybe we could talk to them. Maybe we could talk to the client about the long-term gains of thinking about their project a little more than just doing the traditional vinyl sided, you know? Well, and Sorry you know, I that. think that it's a lie that people aren't interested in energy efficiency. I think the lie that they've been sold is that they don't need it um, or that it is going to cost a significant amount of money. Um, And in some cases it might cost you more in upfront money, but it might cost you less in the long term. So it kind of depends on on how long you plan to stay there. Um, Our society doesn't value those improvements. And so your house isn't always worth more money to the appraiser if you do things better, although it's a significant improvement. Um, For for those people, I usually talk to them in terms of durability, right? Like, what's the one thing a contractor doesn't want to hear? You get a call back because something failed. So let's talk about durability, right? And then as we improve the codes, let's talk about how this stuff works so that we can continue to maintain or improve the durability of a structure. And that you talk to your clients about comfort and health and that those two things shouldn't be luxuries. They they should, you know, do you do you want to spend five grand a year on heating oil? Like, do you want to do that? I mean. I have a house that we designed in 2015 that costs like $11 a month to live in it. Like there's just, you know, I mean. Yeah, that's that you could get people that way. I think that's the way like. I think you just have to talk in terms, you know, it's the same thing where people come up to you and say, oh, I wanted to be an architect, but I'm not any good at math. I think. When you talk to people about building science and improving efficiency, you can talk to contractors about durability because they understand that one. But you can't talk to homeowners about building science because they're you can't talk to a lot of um, contractors about building science, too, because they hear science and physics and think back to the horrible experience they had in high school science and you lose them. But if you talk to them about like, hey. How does the water move through your building? Like there are so many ways to introduce building science that are important that don't use technical terms that make people feel like they don't know enough. And that's, I think the biggest 
I would love to see every lumber company or material company that sells materials has a building scientist on staff who can help you put together your wall system so that you promote durability. Here's the tapes that you're going to need. Here's the breathable membrane that you're going to need. Here's the, you know, and, and that doesn't, that doesn't happen now. That, That is a great idea though, Emily. And you know, you are so inspiring to me that I, um, I'm just going to try to be you or be like you as much as possible. I just saw the list of all your certifications and I thought I could be more like Emily if I got all these certifications. So I'm going to start there. Well, and I also think that it's our job as architects and contractors to bring the bottom up, right? Yeah. It's our job to, not for people to say, oh, they don't want to pay for that, right? But to to put our foot down and say, you asked for my professional opinion and my professional opinion is this is the way to do it. Like, are there ways to go super duper over the top living building challenge, super passive house, whatever? Sure. Absolutely. Those people are great. Hopefully they're figuring out products and information that'll trickle down. That'll make it easier for us to do it all the time. But there are just some things that should be non-negotiable. And if we're not moving forward with those things, then I feel like, why are you hiring an architect? If that person is, if, if you, if you didn't hire me for, for my professional opinion on why you should do things. So. That is a very good point. So anyway, I feel like I talked more than you did, but I appreciate you coming on today. Um, I love to highlight other women, other architects, um, being inspiring. And I know you were like, maybe I shouldn't say what I did with my kids, but I mean, you made it work and you you thought outside of the box and we do that in our architecture practices and how we solve problems for houses. So, um, it was really interesting to hear how you solved that problem for being an architect and, um, to kind of break down those barriers to, um, we do think we have to prove ourselves and work too much and, and do all of that. But as women in the industry, you know, we just, we have to find our own creative solutions on, on how to make it work. And we're, we're, good at a lot of things too. So I really appreciate you sharing your story and what you did. Um, and I hope that it encourages other people. And I, I mean, I'm flattered that you say you want to be me. Nobody wants to be me. I don't really know. (laughs) Well, not you exactly, Emily, but like you, I'd like to be like you. Yeah, I know. I I, I knew what you meant, but like, (laughs) you know, I just, I, I, I think that we can, we can all help each other, you know, to, to move our industry forward. And so, um, thank you for, for joining me today. And, um, I hope you'll come back and I hope people will tune in to, to your podcast that you're doing. And if you're another architect that's in here and you're part of the Entree Architect group, look for things coming up on Artemis, uh, in the future too. So, um, I think it was a great episode to share what you guys, what you've been up to. So thank you so much, Emily. It was fun, fun talking to you. Thanks for tuning in for season three of the podcast. If you want more information on the guest, check out the show notes. If you want to contact me with a question, a comment, or a suggestion for the show, reach out emily at matramarch.com. You can find me on Instagram, matramarch, or on LinkedIn, Emily Matram. And you can find me on Thursday nights at the BS and Beer Show. So come join us live one week. Until then, stay nerdy. Stay nerdy.